All right, I encourage you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 8 this morning, Mark 8. Hope you've enjoyed your weekend, the end of your week. Uh, Yesterday was such a blessing. The weather was so nice, wasn't it? Uh, We have some guests from Minnesota, and um, they were saying, it's so hot down here. Uh, When I was thinking in my mind, I must be acclimated, I was thinking, man, it's kind of cold. I don't know if I want to go to the beach today. But um, hope you're enjoying uh, the end of the week and you've enjoyed your summer. I know during the summer, many of our people are traveling around, uh, vacationing and getting rest. And this is a good thing. We're rejoicing in that with you. We, I do pray every week. I pray for people would be outside of our body, away from the fellowship, that God would encourage them and strengthen them. I was talking to a pastor and he says that during the summer, he thinks maybe 10 or 15% of his congregation has gone every Sunday, different places. And uh, that might be true here as well, but we're just praying that God will bless you. So uh, just in case you have been gone for some time, we're in Mark uh, chapter 8. And uh, we are in a section that I've entitled Jesus's Intermediate Ministry. And this section is almost done. I think the section starts in Mark chapter 6. And it goes through the middle of Mark chapter 8 where we're going to be today. It'll finish here. And I gave some key words to describe Jesus's intermediate ministry. Early in the book, Jesus is authoritative. He's performing miracles. Uh, People see his authority on display. But then when you get to chapter 6, and you can look there in your Bible, just flip around a little bit as I walk through just a a brief reminder. You get to Mark chapter 6, Jesus is rejected. Kind of like in a shocking move, the authoritative son of God is rejected. And that rejection starts out in his hometown of Nazareth, small little town. But they reject him. They ask questions about his authority. And they, they basically dismiss him, saying there's, there's no way this could be the son of God. His disciples are rejected as well uh, throughout some of the villages uh, of Capernaum and Galilee, uh, the Galilee area and region. And uh, John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, is beheaded by Herod, King Herod. He's rejected as well. After that rejection, he encounters strong confrontation in chapter 7. You can read the beginning of chapter 7. The Pharisees come to him again. They see that his disciples are not washing, with, they're not washing their hands when they eat. And so Jesus engages in the strong confrontation. And so for the first part of his intermediate ministry, it's, it's, it's pretty low. People are rejecting him. He's being confronted. But that's when, in the middle of chapter 7, actually in verse 24, a turn takes place in the text where Jesus is accepted. So I said, that's a key word for the book. So rejection, confrontation, acceptance. But Jesus is only accepted as he goes outside of the borders of Israel. He goes up to Tyre and Sidon, the cities of Tyre and Sidon, and he ministers there. And then he ministers in the region of the Decapolis. He heals a man there. And the the Gentiles respond by saying, he does everything well. We see that he's accepted among the Gentile people there. Well, last week we looked at the beginning of chapter 8. We say that that acceptance was soon met again by skepticism and failure or misunderstanding. The skepticism occurs after the feeding of the 4,000 with Jesus' confrontation again by the Pharisees. Jesus comes to them and when he comes to them, they demand a sign. Do you remember this from last week? They demand a sign to verify or authenticate that he is the son of God and Jesus won't give him a sign. 
Jesus refuses to give them a sign. He calls them a wicked generation. And he gets in a boat to depart with his disciples and their one loaf of bread. You remember that? So they get in this boat, they go across the way, and and that's when we find the failure of the disciples. The disciples had failed in boats before and they failed with bread before. Or the feeding of the 5,000 people, 5,000 men. The disciples can't figure out how you can feed this many people with five loaves of bread, but Jesus comes through. In Mark chapter 8, they'd failed as well with the feeding of 4,000. They don't, again, they ask how. How could you feed 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread? Jesus comes through, and that's why when they're in the boat with 13 people and one loaf of bread, they're set up to succeed, right? They're going to succeed in this last makeup test. But they fail again. They fail again. And so we see, middle of the book, middle of the section, skepticism and misunderstanding. But Jesus' intermediate ministry is not quite finished. There's one last section that covers two narratives, two paragraphs, chapter 8, verses 22 through 26, and 27 through 30. That's what we're going to cover today. Chapter 8, 22 through 26, 27 through 30. These two paragraphs that at first don't seem to be related, but they are. Mark would have us read them together. And this section, Jesus, his intermediate ministry ends on a positive note. And if I were giving one word across these verses, I would use the word clarity. Clarity. So what happens now in Jesus' intermediate ministry is there is some clarity that is given to some people, including the disciples. And they most definitely need it. But in this text, we'll see some clarity. So I can see that theme. Look down in your Bible at verse 25, for instance. Look at the middle of that verse. It says, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. See that there? This this man that's going to be healed in this section sees clearly. Go down to verse 32. Jesus is talking with the disciples. It says, and he said this plainly. That could be translated clearly. So this section is about clarity, and that's good because the disciples need this. They really haven't understood much of anything at all in the book so far. Matter of fact, one of the best things you can say to me as a preacher is to come up to me and say, Pastor Brent, that was so clear. That was so clear. That'd be like a compliment. It's easy to be hard to understand. It's pretty easy to be hard to understand. You know, all you really need to do to be hard to understand is not know anything that you're talking about. You just don't know what you're talking about, you're going to be hard to understand. It's easy to be hard to understand. It's hard to be clear, especially if you have dull hearers. And so let's discover, discover the clarity that Christ gives in these two narratives, verses 22 through 26. We'll look at that first. With the healing of a man, a blind man from Bethsaida. Look at verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, 
do not even enter the village. So here when Jesus comes to Bethsaida to perform this miracle, he comes to a small city on the edge of the Sea of Galilee, just tucked right up on the north side of Galilee. It was a fishing town. He's been there before. Several of his disciples are actually from Bethsaida. So he comes to Bethsaida. The text says he, he takes a blind man by the hand. He leads him out of the city. He spits on his eyes. He touches and then heals him. That's the miracle. But I want to point out a few different things about the miracle. I've got three qualities of this miracle I'd like for you to briefly consider. First, I want to suggest that this is a, uh, this is a stunning miracle. It's stunning. I mean, we have been through many miracles in the book of the Gospel of Mark. It can be very easy for us to lose sight of the fact of just how miraculous and amazing this is. To lose focus and say, well, yeah, okay, how many blind people has he healed already? Okay, it's just another one. No, let's not lose sight of this. Blindness was something that people could not overcome in their culture, and it was quite common. It was more common per capita, perhaps, than even in our culture because of all of their bad medical practices, because of their bad hygiene, and because of uh, just complications of various diseases and so on. Many people were blind. It was, it was common, but although it was common, people never really recovered from it. You weren't cured by this sort of thing. Uh, their crude medical practices and methods offered no hope in situations like this, but Jesus intervenes. Last week I said with the disciples what they really needed to know is if you have Jesus, you have enough. And that's what this blind man realizes. There's no way, there's no way to be delivered. No one can help me, no doctor, no medicine, no nothing. I just need Jesus. And so Jesus heals him. This is a stunning miracle. Second way I describe this miracle is, is that it's unique. So studying this account, you know, it looks pretty straightforward. You can see what's going on very easily in the text. But there are several things that stuck out to me as being different from other miracles that we've seen so far in the book. If I had to get like four or five things to just have you briefly reflect upon to show you that this is a unique miracle. So for instance, this is a miracle that takes place in two stages. You see that? Okay, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit later on as we go throughout here. Now, why did Jesus do it this way? Uh, we don't really know for sure. I'm going to tell you what I think here in a little while, near the end of the sermon. So you have to stay, stay with us through the end, you know, 50 minutes from now or so. Uh, just, just kidding. This is a two-stage miracle. This is the only miracle that I can find anywhere in the Gospels that occurs in two stages. Okay, so he's healed partially and then full healing. This is unique as well because this is the only miracle where Jesus confirms with a person that he's been healed. I didn't see that in any other miracle. Have you? Go through the Gospels and look for it. Does Jesus ever say, have you been healed? Has anything happened? He confirms this miracle by asking the question. He, he also, unlike other miracles in Mark's Gospel, what normally happens is someone gets healed and then you get the response. Like the response of the crowds or the response of his friends who brought him. No response to the crowds here. Mark gets right to another story. And I think there's a reason for that. And then finally, this, uh, another thing that makes this unique, this is, this is one of only two miracles in the gospel of Mark that are unique to this gospel. In other words, no other gospel, synoptic gospel, has this miracle in it. And so that, that begs the question, why did Mark record this miracle 
What specific purpose does he have? What profound point does he want to make with it? But before we get to that purpose and that point, I want to see one last characteristic of the miracle. Okay? There's one other way I describe it. I'd say it's stunning, it is unique, and it's a complete miracle. I just want to make sure we're on the same page here. This man comes to Jesus blind. He leaves at the end with full sight. Okay, now the text actually says there are two stages, and we'll just review them. Look down in verse 23 to see the first stage of the miracle. So he took the blind man by the hand, led him out of the village, and when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, <coughs> but they look like trees walking. So here Jesus heals the man, and the man says he only sees partially. And he gives this very intriguing description, doesn't he? I see people, but they look like trees that are walking. Okay, and we don't know exactly what the point of this is. I, I think it's just basically he's saying, I, I don't read too much in it. I think he's just saying he sees the outline or the figure of people, but he cannot see them in crisp detail. Another way of saying this is the people are out of focus. Their arms look like tree limbs. Okay? But then that leads to stage two. That's verse 25. So look there in your Bible. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. He opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Okay, so Jesus lays his hand on the man again. Now the man is fully healed. He sees well. His sight is completely restored. There's no other way to take this text. Completely restored. The text says that he sees everything plainly or clearly. Jesus does not perform like a partial healing or miracle here. Okay, like, uh, unlike many like faith healers or TV evangelists would possibly try to claim today. It's not partial. It's not fake. It's the whole way. And this can be verified by the fact that this man can see everything. And so uh, this miracle is complete. Uh, but there is one last question for us to answer about this, and that question for me is, why does this miracle occur in two stages? You know, what's, what's going on here? What's, why, you know, is this an especially difficult miracle or something? Is Jesus, like, just need more power? I've, I've heard all kinds of questions and speculations. Uh, does this man, ha- like, not have enough faith? I think none of those are the right answer. I think to answer that question... You go to the very next text in this gospel and you read the second narrative that God, through the Holy Spirit, led Mark to write. So to answer why two stages, we go to verse 27. So go there in your Bible. It says, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them that they should tell no one about him. Now we're going to save our question again for the end, because I just want to walk briefly through this text. The question is, why two stages in the miracle, previous miracle? Let's try to figure out this text, and then we'll try to connect them. First of all, we see that Jesus goes on a trip with his disciples north to the villages and region of Caesarea Philippi. Okay, so if you had a map in your Bible, you could look and you could see that he's going 25 miles north 
up to where the Jordan River's water, headwaters start near Mount Hermon. It goes up there to the city. It's a beautiful region and city, although I would remind you again, it's a Gentile territory. Jesus is up with Gentiles here, and this is going to be an interesting place for the, the disciples to make the discovery that they do. Okay, so on this journey with his disciples, they're traveling up to Caesarea Philippi. In that region, in that city, he asks them two questions. Okay, the first question I would just say is a political question. The second one is a, is a personal question. Okay, uh, the first question is, who do people say that I am? See that in your Bible? Who do people say that I am? I think this is a, an interesting question that he asked them here. Uh, perhaps the disciples are a little bit more familiar with the, the, you know, the, the estimations of the populace, of what people would think. They've been rubbing shoulders with Jew and Gentile, and so they've been hearing different reports or suggestions about who Jesus is. Or maybe Jesus is just preparing the way for a more difficult question, a more uh, personal question. Okay, sometimes we do this, don't we, in confrontations or in questions. You, know, you ask one that's kind of general, get them talking about the subject, and then... Phew, zero in. Maybe that's what Jesus is doing. Their answer, very interesting to me, comes in the same form and sequence as a report that we saw earlier in Mark's gospel. If you remember, I'm calling Mark 6 through 8 Jesus's intermediate ministry. You might, you might wonder, well, why would you divide right, right at the beginning of 6, right, at the end, right in the middle of 8? Why, why would you hold these three chapters together? What do you, what do you think is going on? Well, one of the reasons I do this, because I think Mark would have us read it that way. In this section, in chapter 8, he goes through this list of three things, you know, of, of the way the populace think of Jesus. He's already done that at, at the beginning of this section, chapter 6. Go up to chapter 6 and look with me at verses 14 and 15. 6, 14, 15, when he's talking about what King Herod thought about Jesus, notice how the text starts, Mark 6, 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, listen, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work with him. But others said he's Elijah, and others said he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. Get that? John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. And we've worked through that with King Herod. Now go to Mark 8, 28. Go to Mark 8.28, both the beginning and the end of this intermediate section about Jesus' ministry, you get the same answer. So Jesus asks, who do people say that I am? And verse 28, and they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. So it's, it's a bit abbreviated here, but they're giving the same report that Herod knew of. Okay? Now Herod messes it up. Right, because right after that, in chapter 6, when Herod says, you know, I've got these three choices. Is it John the Baptist raised from the dead? Is it, is it Elijah? Is it one of the prophets? Herod says, it's John the Baptist reanimated. He's come back to life because he's doing miracles now. And it may be that King Herod thought that because his guilty conscience was getting to him. For he was the one who took the life of John the Baptist. But he missed it, right? Jesus is not John the Baptist. It's not Elijah. He's not one of the prophets. And that's where the disciples finally get something right. They get his identity right. And so we go to the second question he asked them. He says, who do people say that I am? Then he says, 
Who do you think I am? What's your evaluation? Mark chapter 8. Now this question is addressed to the whole group. You translate it, uh, who do you all think? If you were from Pennsylvania, Western Pennsylvania, you'd say, who do yins think? I know it's not very popular. Who do you all think I am? Who do you think? And the answer that they give comes from one person. It's like the whole group, and then one person speaks up, and it's Peter, right? So why does Peter speak up? I think Peter's a spokesperson for the group. And so he answers this question very directly. And so I think that Peter's confession here is the true evaluation of Jesus. He says, Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is Messiah. And and their answer is good. Jesus does not correct them. He simply tells them, okay, now you you can't tell other people about this for a while. You got to keep this private for a while. I want to make two statements about Peter's confession here. Jesus is Messiah. First, it's a correct confession. Here, the first half of the book comes to a close in this verse. If you read the commentary literature, I mean, they do a lot with this verse right here, this end of the section. They call it the pinnacle of the book, the point to which the whole book has been leading. I mean, to this point, what you've been discussing is the identity of Jesus. Who is he? That's what Mark 1 through 8 is about. Who is this man? Early in the book, we're told from Mark who he is, but throughout the book, other people aren't really getting it very much. And this is the first time that Jesus will be identified by the term Messiah in the book. And so this is about who Jesus is. He's been performing miracles, exercising demons. He's authoritative, but that's because He's God's divine son, and he's the anointed one that comes from God. Now, the second half of this book will be about what Messiah must do and what followers of Messiah must do, followers of Jesus must do, but the the disciples get it right here. Is this a correct confession? And then I would say it's an important confession, for they identify or he identifies Jesus as the Messiah, Uh, Jesus is not just a prophet, like one of the three that have been mentioned, John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. He's not just a prophet. He is the special one, the one that the Old Testament describes as the one who would come to deliver the people. He's the redeemer, the deliverer. He's God's sent king who will rule over his people. So Peter gets this right. The disciples finally get it right. He's God's anointed king. Yet what's going to happen here is it will become obvious at this point in the very next section that although they get that question right, who is Jesus? Their conception of what the Messiah is is completely wrong. And so that's what the second half of the book is going to be about. Who is Jesus? He's Messiah. What must the Messiah do? He must die and be resurrected. Look with me, as a matter of fact, down in chapter 8, and we'll just read the, the next few verses. We're going to talk about these tonight. Verse 31. 
And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. He's been speaking in parables before. Mysterious utterances. The disciples really had a hard time understanding. He says this clearly and boldly. Messiah must die. Son of man will die. Be rejected. Be killed. Verse 32. Middle of the verse. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So it's obvious to me here, you know, in my Bible... I've highlighted the word Peter in verse 29, verse 32, and I've connected them. I say, Peter and the disciples are what that illustration of blindness were to represent. It was a metaphor for them. The disciples expect a royal king, and Jesus takes the second half of this book to introduce them to the concept that Jesus will be a suffering king. Another way of saying this, just so I say this clearly to you, you know, in a sermon on clarity, I've got to be clear. The disciples see Jesus as a tree walking, but only later will they fully grasp the character of his mission as a suffering servant. They're right. He is Messiah. Even though their ideas of what a Messiah must do are wrong. And so the two-stage healing of the man's blindness is an illustration of the two-stage recognition of Jesus that the disciples must come to. He's Messiah, and Messiah must die. And so Jesus helps the disciples see, both here. In fact, that second part, it's going to take them the rest of the book to figure that out fully. To grasp it. It's not till the resurrection, I don't think, that they fully get it. So in this section, we see Jesus helps the disciples see. As we close, you might ask the question, uh, so what? You know, good. Another thing to add to my arsenal about Jesus, two-stage miracle. It's about the recovery of the sight of the disciples, so what? Well, I'll close by asking you a few questions about your own relationship to Christ. First, I ask, how well do you know Christ? How well do you understand his ways? Are the ways of Jesus perplexing to you? Can you picture yourself in the metaphor of someone who kind of sees things a bit fuzzy? What's going on? If you see anything about Jesus. And if you want to know Jesus more, Where should you go? The scriptures, right? The text. That's why we preach expositionally at Colonial Baptist Church. Go verse by verse through the text. Why? Because this will reveal to us more about Jesus. This is a Jesus book. And we go through it and we look at the verses and we pay close attention because we want to learn more about him. And this is really all I have to offer you as a preacher. 
I come to you in a moment of distress in your own life, a moment of pastoral counsel, you know, and I always think, you know, what do I have to offer these people? So I kind of reach in my pocket and I think, okay, they're struggling with cancer, got a loved one who's dying. All I have in here is a mint. That's not going to help anyone. Maybe a little bit of lint. Got nothing other than the timeless and eternal word of God, the written word of God that tells us about the living God. That's why we make much out of this book. This book tells us about Jesus. And so it's our heart and our prayer that God would slowly take the layers of spiritual blindness off of those people who attend Colonial Baptist Church. And here's, sometimes maybe not slowly, maybe sometimes dramatically, that's fine with me too. But through the preaching and teaching of the word of God that, that we would make much out of Jesus, that he would remove the cataracts one layer at a time while we discover the living word of God. So this is why we preach expositionally. We want to know more of Jesus. We all in some ways can picture ourselves like the disciples. They're just these parts, these things we just don't know about Jesus yet. So we come and we pay close attention to the way the word is preached. The moment of application as well, I say this is why we study the word throughout the course of the week as well. I mean, last week, I really pushed you not to be hard to Jesus. Said, you know, we like to talk about him in here. We like to do all these things. But if we're not reading his words, are we really Jesus people? And I pushed you. And so I ask you, as a form of accountability to you, how has this week gone for you? I mean, if we long to know more about Jesus, we will be in his word. What is your plan to be in God's word? Don't rest in spiritual dullness. Say, oh, you know, I'll just let the preacher do that. This is not like a paid professional thing. Like sometimes I'll tell church people, you know, what's your job? I say, well, pastor, I go through the whole thing. So one of the things I do is I study the word of God. I'll say, you know what, you know, I get the privilege of studying the Bible 20 hours a week. And occasionally, occasionally a Christian will come to me and say, well, that's just not for me. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not a student like that. I couldn't really give myself to that. And I, just to be honest with you, that just really floors me. It's like, if someone gave you 20 hours a week, you wouldn't want to do this? I know there's a calling for pastoral ministry and so on, but we should want to know more and more about Jesus through reading the word. And so what is your plan? How, you know, when was the last time you spent... 10 focused minutes reading this book about the living word of God so that you might be able to catch just a little clearer glimpse of who Jesus is. Now we come to things like this, a two-stage miracle. It's like, I what, two-stage mirror? I'm just going to keep reading. Oh, no. No. Instead, dig, study, read, so that you might learn more about the Son of God. This week, I was just a few minutes ago, I had my sermon all done. 
I was standing here praying before the service, and I think the Lord gave me a song of meditation. I haven't thought about this song for a long time. Perhaps you know it. It's to my mind, God gave this song, More About Jesus. I pray that this would be true of Colonial Baptist Church. More about Jesus would I know. More of his grace to others show. More of his saving fullness see. More of his love who died for me. More, more about Jesus. More, more about Jesus. More of his saving fullness see. More of his love who died for me. More about Jesus, let me learn. More of his holy will discern. Spirit of God, my teacher, be showing the things of Christ to, to me. I mean, is that like your prayer language to God? Spirit, show the things of Christ to me this week. More about Jesus in his word. Holding communion with my Lord. Hearing his voice in every line. Making each faithful saying mine. More. More about Jesus. More, more about Jesus. Trust that would be true of us as Colonial Baptist Church, not content with with any level of spiritual dullness. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, it takes the Spirit of God to remove callousness and spiritual blindness And so this morning we've prayed that you would remind us of our ever-present goal and purpose in life to know more of Jesus through your word. May we want to know about Jesus as Messiah, about what Jesus went through, his suffering, his rejection, his death. I pray that you would help us. Perhaps this morning, morning, there's someone here who doesn't understand much about Jesus at all. You're new to church, perhaps. Say, you're talking about like seeing Jesus, and I'll just be honest, I just, I, I know. I know I lived in Israel. Just take a moment and tell you what you need to know about Jesus. You need to know that Jesus died for your sins. The Bible's clear that Romans 3 says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every person who's ever lived other than Jesus has sinned. And the Bible's also clear that the payment of sin is death, for the wages of sin is death. It tells us in the Gospel of Matthew that that death that comes as a result of our own sin, sin of Adam, means that when we die, we will be eternally separated from God in a place called hell. An extreme torment, eternal fire. And that is the fate of every person on this planet. Unless they believe in Jesus Christ. And so if you're here today, And you say, I don't know what to believe about Jesus. What you need to believe, what you need to know is that Jesus came to this planet 
He lived a perfect life as the Son of God. He died on the cross for your sins in your place. And he rose three days later, later by the power of God so that you might be delivered from your sin and the punishment of your sin. So if you're here today and you don't know much about Jesus, you need to confess your sins to God. You can do that now at your seat. Say, Lord, I've offended you in this way, in this way. You're a perfect God. You're holy. And I've done this or that or this. We're all sinners. Confess those sins to the Lord and you say to Jesus, you say to God, I believe that Jesus came and died and rose again for my sin. If you believe that, you can leave here today with some level of spiritual vision and begin to see the beauty of who Jesus is. Let me close by praying for you as well. Lord, I pray for anyone here today, perhaps there are several who are blind, dead in trespasses and sins, hopeless by themselves. I pray that they would believe on Jesus, turn from their sins, and be able to enjoy Christ forevermore. We thank you for this, Lord. Pray that you would do this through the power of your own spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.